Good morning. Uh, hello, if you do not know me, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I get to open God's Word with you today. Uh, we did want to wish you a uh, very happy Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for choosing not to go camping and spending your morning uh, with us today. It's nice to see you here. Uh, we want to extend a special thank you to the construction workers that are taking Memorial Weekend off. Uh, <laughs> God's blessings shows up in lots of ways. Uh, but before uh, we go any further, I want to pause and uh, just pray for a minute as we head uh, into the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for this day. I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have to come together and worship you and focus our hearts and our minds towards you and be reminded of who you are, of what you have done for us and what you are doing in us. God, your love for us as we sang this morning is so amazing. It says each day that you give to us is a gift. And, and Lord, we want to use this day that you have given to us well. We want to use it through worship. We want to use it through fellowship with each other. We want to use it by spending time listening and hearing from you this morning through your word. God, would you teach us something today? Would you guide our hearts and, and open our, our eyes to see what you would have us see? Would this time that we spend uh, together be um, a blessing on us and glorifying to you? So we ask for your help with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you've been with us last week, Eric finished up our series on Second Peter, uh, and next week we'll be starting our summer series on the book of Proverbs. Uh, so I got the privilege of, of deciding anything in the entire scripture to preach uh, this morning, which is a terrifying responsibility. Uh, but this winter I found myself studying in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. Uh, and I found it to be um, just a really good time of study for myself, and, and I felt like I learned a lot of things out of it. So I was hoping to share some of those things with you guys this morning. And the book of Ruth is a love story. And, and if we're honest, most of us love a good love story. Uh, I actually did a search for uh, the best chick flicks uh, and I found several top 100 lists. I'm terrified that there's 100 of them, but <laughs> moment of confession, I was a little startled when I realized how many of them I'd actually seen. <laughs> it turns out in my 14 years of marriage, there have been many nights where I did not pick the movie. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> it, it was about sports, I'm sure. Uh, but even if you're, you're like me and you wouldn't list romance as your favorite genre, uh, once I start watching the movie, wh whatever it may be, I find myself getting sucked into the love story. You, you want to see how it turns out. You want to see how their love conquers the impossible obstacle that's in the way. So we see that this morning as we are going to go through the book of Ruth, where it tells a beautiful love story, and we get to see God at work in the life of this young woman, Ruth. So if you have your, your Bible and want to turn there, uh, we're, we're going to be in Ruth this morning, uh, and let's see what we can find there. We'll start right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth. 
to this back. All right. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So we get the the setting right here at the very beginning to to put the story in context that it's set in the time of the judges. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that judges was not a good time in the history of Israel. It's a time signified by bad leadership, uh, signified by lots of outside influences trying to draw the people away from God. So just a troubling and sort of unsettling time in Israel's history. Uh, We're also told that they lived in the city of Bethlehem, maybe a a city that you've heard of. Uh, But at this time, there was a severe famine in the land. And there's definitely some irony in the fact that the city of Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. And yet at this time, there was no bread to be found in Bethlehem. So there's this famine going on that's a real driving force in this story. And I think for, for modern readers, this concept of famine is, is easily lost on us. I will certainly say that for myself. Uh, in my own knowledge, the closest that Fairbanks has ever come to a famine was that year where the pumpkins froze during transport and we couldn't find one before Halloween. Like That's our, that's our understanding of, of famine here. We, in our culture aren't often forced to make a lot of choices based on the availability of food. Uh, Whenever I'm talking to what seems to be about the 20% of Alaska that moves away every summer, it's not usually the the bounty of food that is drawing them away. I've never heard uh, the availability of meats and potatoes on the pros and cons list of why you're moving out of Alaska. I've heard the cost of meat and potatoes on the pros and cons list as to why you're moving away from Alaska, but not the bounty of it. But back then, a famine was a life-changing event or possibly a life-ending event for many people. And this is what's going on in Israel. So it is a troubling and a difficult time. And so we see that in the lives of Elimelech and Naomi, that the current situation, it's bad enough for them to leave. Uh, Elimelech packs up his wife, Naomi, and their, their two sons, and they leave for the country of Moab. Um, and this wasn't just the next town over. This wasn't a desired destination for an Israelite. This was a sign of utter desperation. You didn't just move back then. You stayed with your people. You stayed with your tribe. You, you stayed where you were but they felt that it was bad enough that they needed to leave to try to save their family. But then after the move, Elimelech dies, and Naomi is left there with her two sons. Uh, But they are able to go on and find Moabite wives. We're told their names are Orpah and Ruth. Uh, And so they live there in Moab for about 10 years, and then both the sons die. And so you get the sense that Naomi just has this, I can't catch a break 
kind of mentality. Verse 6 of the first chapter, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Naomi goes, I've had enough of this place. It's, it's bad enough here. It's time to go home. Verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. They begin to to start off back to Bethlehem, and Naomi stops them and says, girls, stay. Uh, Travel back then was was very treacherous. It would have been a dangerous journey for a group uh, of women to travel back to Bethlehem. And and she tells them that there's not a lot there waiting for you. There's not a lot of great opportunities for you to start over. She says, you're not likely to find the husbands that you're looking for in a land that's foreign to you. Naomi works pretty hard to try to convince them to go back. But the girls say, we're coming anyway. We're coming with you. And so Naomi persists and, and, and tearfully, she says, don't come. You are better off staying here. In verse 14, at this they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So she tried to, to, to get Ruth to stay, and Ruth says, no, I'm not. It makes you wonder sort of what it was about Naomi that caused Ruth to be so faithful to her. We're not told specifically. It certainly wasn't the logical decision for her to stick with Naomi and to go back to Bethlehem. Ruth was leaving behind everything that she knew in her loyal companionship to Naomi. And so it's sort of not your, your prototypical mother-in-law relationship. She says, I am sticking with you through whatever is next. And so they make the journey back to Bethlehem, and we actually see the people there are very surprised to see Naomi. And in verse 20, Naomi reintroduces herself to the people in Bethlehem, and she says this, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which, which means bitter. And we certainly see this practice elsewhere in Scripture where people get their names changed at significant life events, but it's usually used in a positive circumstance. So this is one of the rare times where we actually see it in a negative sense, where she changes her name to bitter because of her circumstances. 
Now, at best, giving her the benefit of the doubt, you could say Naomi is describing her life up to this point as bitter, the, the experiences that she's gone through, the death of a husband and two sons. But in reality, she's likely describing her attitude and, and particularly her attitude towards God. I'm bitter. Call me Mara. Naomi is displaying a common belief that life's circumstances are a direct reflection of God's pleasure or his displeasure towards an individual. God did this to me. God's mad at me. And it can be very tempting and very easy to fall into this type of thinking. Naomi's certainly not the first to come to these conclusions. If you're familiar with the book of Job, think of Job's friends and all of their advice as they attempted to counsel Job through his grief. They essentially said to him, man, what did you do to make God so mad at you? Naomi is is judging the story before it's over. She's come to a conclusion about God based on her current circumstances. And she says, call me Mara because I'm bitter. Now, if the story ended there, this would be a pretty tragic book. This this would be a pretty heartbreaking uh, book. But the story doesn't go there, and these ladies decide to move on. And so actually in chapter 2, we see the beginning of the transition into the next chapter of their life. We see Ruth and Naomi getting a fresh start and Ruth getting a fresh love interest. Uh, at the very beginning of chapter 2, we're, we're given an, an important little detail uh, about a relative of Naomi's former husband, whose name is Boaz, uh, and he's going to become pretty important. They begin to settle back into life in Bethlehem. Uh, we're told that it is harvest season, uh, and so Ruth goes out to secure some food for her and for Naomi through a process called gleaning. Uh, This is part of the Old Testament law that allowed those who were poor uh, to walk through a field after it had been harvested. The the workers in their process would miss some parts uh, of the grain, and they weren't allowed to go back and collect those parts. They just kind of had to make a pass through and leave some of the leftovers there, uh, and, and those that needed it could come behind after them and find food. And so it's this really beautiful Old Testament God-ordained welfare system. And so we see Ruth uh, taking uh, advantage of that opportunity to go and collect food for them. And we're told, and this is the quote, as it turns out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So we go, okay, was this just blind luck? Did maybe Naomi offer a suggested field? She knew the land and say, I don't know, why don't you pick that field over there to start in? Is this God's just sovereign guidance that that Naomi by happenstance ended up in, or sorry, that Ruth by happenstance ended up in Boaz's field? And we aren't told specifically, uh, but you can draw your own conclusions. What is God's role in coincidences? Uh, I was recently reading uh, a book from Donald Whitney uh, on spiritual disciplines, and as he was talking about prayer and looking at coincidences in his own life, he said this, if it is a coincidence, I sure have a lot more coincidences when I pray than when I don't. So, Ruth goes to work in Boaz's fields, and Boaz comes as, as the, the owner of the land to check on the fields and to check on his workers. 
and we're told that he notices Ruth. And we're not told if it was just physical attraction. We're actually told that that Ruth caught the attention of his foreman by her diligent and industrious work ethic. He was impressed with how hard she worked. And so Boaz uh, comes to her and invites her to continue gleaning from his field. And he even offers her some protection and offers access to his water. He definitely goes above and beyond anything that he was obligated to do. And so I would, I would consider this a credit to Boaz. In the book of James, we're told that one of the tests of the authenticity of our love for God is how we treat orphans and widows. And so here, Boaz is making special provision for this widow. And Ruth is very taken aback by this. She's very surprised that Boaz would treat her a foreigner, a Moabite, so well. And at some point, Boaz does a little digging into Ruth's history and finds out her relationship to Naomi and how kind and gracious Ruth was to accompany her back from Moab. And so he invites Ruth to have a meal with him and with his employees. And at some point during this meal, he gives some instructions to his employees to feel free to miss a bit more in their harvesting than usual. Um, leave behind a little bit extra. Make it easy on Ruth to, to collect the food that she needs. And so you get the sense that at this point of the story, people are probably starting to clue in to Boaz's favor and interest in Ruth. Um, whatever the norms were, this had far exceeded them. So the day ends and Ruth goes home and, and brings home more food than Naomi would have expected. And, and so she goes kind of ask some follow-up questions. Tell me about your day. That's a, that's a lot of grain you've got there. And so Ruth, in this sort of innocent and naive way, goes, um, yeah, there's this really nice guy named Boaz whose field I was in, and he was very kind to me. And then uh, Naomi responds in, in chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. I just love that, that, that opening uh, verse 20. The Lord bless him. You almost want to read it like a, just a kind old southern grandma. Well, just bless his heart, that Boaz. <laughs> and she also says, he's not just a distant relative. He is the, the guardian redeemer of Ruth and Naomi. And we tend to use the phrase the kinsman uh, redeemer, and this, this had a special role uh, in, in the Old Testament system. Uh, it would be the closest living male relative who had the right and the duty to obtain back or to redeem either property or people that had been lost from the family. And so sort of the modern day equivalent would be if, if you went broke and you had to sell your house, uh, your closest male relative had the legal right to purchase it from whoever sold it at market value, or from whoever you had sold it to at, at market value, that they could go and, and redeem your property back and keep it in the family. And it also extended to, to relatives that had to sell themselves into slavery, that they could be bought back out of that, and it served the purpose of protecting the family line, it protected the family's property throughout generations, it helped to prevent people from being taken advantage of in difficult life circumstances. 
And there's a third element that it also included, the responsibility to help pass on an heir by providing a son to carry on the family name through the widow. And so this role of guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer, uh, was a very significant role, uh, and, and Naomi is clued into that. Naomi would be aware of this with with her Jewish background, but perhaps Ruth was not being a Moabite. Uh, But the possibility that Boaz is our kinsman redeemer and he's showing such kindness to you gets Naomi very excited. So we go into chapter three, and Naomi urges Ruth to be a bit more proactive in her relationship with Boaz. And we see a very bold proposal Naomi urges Ruth, don't just wait and see what happens with Boaz. The harvest is happening, and the immediate opportunity to interact with Boaz might be ending for a while. And so she gives her the advice that at the end um, of the harvest, Boaz will go to the threshing floor. Uh, And and if you're not familiar with what the idea of a threshing floor is, it's an open outdoor place where they would take the harvest, they would take the grain, and it'd be placed on this hard surface, and it would be beaten, allowing sort of the different parts to separate and and some of the unnecessary parts to be blown away by the wind, leaving the valuable and the heavy grain behind. So the closest that I ever get to farming is usually in video games, so if I said any of that wrong, I apologize, but the, the thing that you need to know is that the end of the harvest, it was a place where Boaz would be and all of his crops uh, would be there as well. And so Boaz goes to the threshing floor and, and Ruth is going to go there with him. Now there's a couple of, of potential reasons as to why Boaz would have gone there. Uh, the first is that all of his crops were there. His harvest was there. Perhaps he was going there to guard it overnight while it would have been vulnerable to thieves. Um, But based on Boaz and and his wealth, it seems unlikely that that it would be necessary for him to guard his own crop. It seems like the kind of thing that you would have a hired worker to do. He certainly had hired workers to do all of the other things, so why not the guarding as well? We also see that that during the, the night, he falls asleep pretty soundly. So if he's going there to guard it, he stinks at it. The other sort of most, what I think is the most likely reason for why Boaz is going to go there, why why Naomi knew that Boaz would go there, is that this, this idea of a ceremonial celebration, sort of the end of the harvest, that you would go and sleep on the threshing floor with all of your grain. I would picture the idea of kids sleeping under the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve a ceremonial celebration of this season. And so he would be going there, not for any necessary reason, but to just rejoice in what's happening. So we're told that Boaz goes and there's a a big meal and then he has a good beverage and he sleeps under the stars to celebrate the harvest. Now, Naomi tells Ruth that this is what's going to happen and that she should fancy herself up a bit, put on some perfume and her best clothes, and go to the threshing floor that evening. And she says, after the evening is done and everyone's sort of celebrated, says, go and position yourself near Boaz's feet and uncover them. Typical advice, you know, mother to daughter kind of thing. And so there's some debate as to what this actually means. Why was the advice to go and uncover his feet? Um, Was it symbolic of of something, or was it that she was just trying to create enough 
discomfort that he would wake up at some point in the middle of the night and notice her there. Ruth is an obedient daughter and follows the instructions and uncovers his feet and lays down there. And Boaz, at some point in the night in chapter 3, wakes up and is aware of somebody there. Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. Who are you, he asked, and get off my feet. (laughs) And she responds, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether richer or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So we see a a bit of a Sadie Hawkins dance situation here as Ruth proposes the idea of marriage to Boaz. And we see that Boaz's response is very favorable. But we also learn of, of a potential bump in the plan. There might be another who is a closer redeemer than Boaz. Boaz is a close relative, but, but the other one, if, if by blood, is, is a closer uh, relation, then they would have the availability to redeem and to purchase back Naomi, Ruth, and the family property. But here, I think you, you see more upstanding behavior from Boaz as he says, I will settle this as quickly as possible. I'm not going to leave you hanging. We're going to get to the conclusion of this. And so early in the morning, uh, Boaz asks her to leave. And he actually asks her to sort of leave before she's seen by anyone. And, and there are some debates. Some scholars see the events that occur at the threshing floor as a morally scandalous incident that Boaz was trying to cover up by having her leave early. What truly occurred during the middle of the night uh, meeting between two unwed people at the threshing floor? What I would say is that if you read your Bible, it does not shy away about openly discussing sexual sins when the situation warrants it. It it seems to me the most likely uh, events are that Boaz was trying to protect his and Ruth's reputation from damage. I've learned gossips don't have a habit of letting the actual facts get in the way of a good story. And uninformed people might have jumped to the wrong conclusions. So he's not covering up an indiscretion. He's protecting an unnecessary slight against both of their reputations. We move into the the final chapter of the story, chapter 4, and Boaz becomes the main character of the story at this point. He goes to the gates of the city to seek out the other potential kinsman redeemer. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So we see the the situation is playing out there in the city gates. It's kind of the the city hall of the day, the official place where business took, um, what took place. In a mostly illiterate culture, business deals like this would be carried out in public in front of witnesses so that they could be made official. So Boaz truthfully brings the opportunity uh, to this man. He, he's not shady in, in his um, description of it and says, you are the closest relative you can, you have the right to redeem it. Uh, And so this guy, it seems like a good opportunity. He's like, yeah, I'll take that piece of property. But then Boaz follows with some additional information, some extra strings to be considered. He says, with the land comes Naomi and Ruth and the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. And this guy does the math and comes to the conclusion that that it's not worth the risk. And he says, no thanks. And so we see that Naomi and Ruth are refused. That This man has the opportunity to redeem them and says, no, I don't want to. It's, it's too much of a burden for me. It's too much of a risk for me. You guys are on your own. Maybe it was the, the financial consideration of too many mouths to feed. You know, just, boy, I, maybe if another famine hits, I don't want uh, two more women that, that I, I have to provide for. It could have been the unwanted responsibility of having to produce an heir uh, with, with Ruth, and that might make things tricky at home. And so he had his chance, and he said, I'm going to pass. And you get the sense as you read it that Boaz is having a hard time holding back his smile at this point, and he jumps at the chance. Verse 9, then Boaz, probably just standing up as tall as he can, announces to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Maon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Very official. We see the, the beautiful thing. Ruth and Naomi, after being rejected, are now redeemed. Uh, we get the happy ending. Ruth and Naomi find protection in the stability uh, of Boaz. And we see that God has allowed Boaz and Ruth to then go on and conceive a son together. His name is Obed. And Obed actually eventually goes on to have a son of his own, and his son is named Jesse. And we're told that Jesse goes on to have several sons, one of those by the name of David. And so at the end of Ruth, we get this unexpected godly legacy. Ruth and Boaz's son is the grandfather to King David. The Davidic line shockingly takes a little detour through a Moabite widow. And then there's this big reveal at the end of the story that, that puts uh, the, the experiences of Ruth into this greater context. What might have seemed like just a random story actually plays a part in God's plan for the throne of Israel and the eventual Messiah. 
So a, a sweet story, a good story, just in and of itself, a, a good read uh, and, and an encouraging little tale. But there are things here that we uh, can learn, that we can pull out that, that are universally applicable. But there are some things that we should not learn from this story. A couple things that it's not teaching. It is not teaching that marriage is a solution to all your problems. In, in Ruth's circumstance, a home and a children would sig- signify rest and stability and security, but that is not universally applicable. Marriage is one of God's good creations, but the Apostle Paul also warns that marriage is not the easier path. It can have the effect of dividing our focus towards the Lord, and, and it is not God's plan for everyone. This, the book of Ruth is also not teaching that if we trust God like Ruth did, it, that everything works out in the end. In a sinful and broken world, pain and hardship are the norm and not always avoided if we simply obey God. And in fact, we're told in the scriptures that obedience to God may make our daily lives more challenging as we live in a world that openly opposes the ways of God. The Bible does not teach a do-good, get-good arrangement with God. We're told the rain, the sun, and in Alaska, the snow fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But there are some things that we do learn from this story. I think we see that nobody is insignificant to God. There was nothing significant about Ruth. She was a broken-hearted widow in the land of Moab, and yet God chose to intervene in her life and bring about redemption. Now, it's easy to see God work in the lives of some of these great biblical heroes like Abraham and David, but there is something so comforting to me and I think to all of us when we see God intervene in the life of someone who has done nothing to deserve it. Jesus tells us that God's love extends and is demonstrated to the sparrows. How much more is his love for each and every one of us that was created in his image? Uh, There is nothing of significance in Ruth that, that, that was that drew God to her, but he loved her anyway and and made her significant. We're reminded by Paul that God has made great in our weaknesses. Ruth was in a position of great weakness and vulnerability, and it was a great opportunity for God to display his goodness and his greatness in her. We also see the concept that redemption is costly. Um, Boaz fulfills this role of kinsman redeemer in the life of Naomi and Ruth, Uh, He did it voluntarily, but he did it at a cost. The other kinsman redeemer that had the opportunity passed on it because of the cost and the risk. And we see this as a model of how Christ willingly uh, will redeem mankind and how it was done at a cost, a a willing cost. Jesus in, in John 10 tells us that he laid his life down by choice as a demonstration of love. Uh, And Paul reminds us in Corinthians that we were purchased with a price and that we ought to live like it. In Boaz, we get to see this cool foreshadowing of God's pursuing love, um, seeing us in our desperation and vulnerability and paying the necessary cost to redeem us out of our sin. God loves you enough to do something about it. God loves you enough to pay the cost to buy you back. I know that I'm not worthy of it, but I'm sure thankful for it. I think the last, uh, the lesson that we see is God's faithfulness regardless of current circumstances. 
Naomi makes the mistake that many loyal but hurting believers have committed. Interpreting and trying to figure out God in light of our current circumstances rather than interpreting and trying to figure out our circumstances in light of God and his character. Let me say that again. Naomi was trying to define God in light of her current difficult circumstances rather than trying to interpret her current difficult circumstances in light of who God is and who his character is. At no point did God change. God was the same when Naomi was a desperate widow in a foreign land as when she was a satisfied grandma holding her grandson in her arms. We're told by the writer of Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yet we, as humanity, have a tendency to come to ever-changing conclusions about God's goodness based on what's happened to us in the last 48 hours. So I ask you, what are you reacting to that has caused you to change your perspective towards God? Do you trust that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Are you giving God time to work out his full plan before you judge him on it? Are you holding on to some hurt or some pain that is painting an inaccurate picture of who God is for you? What would it look like for you to follow and to trust God in the midst of life's current circumstances, whether they be good or whether they be difficult? Let's pray. God, life is not easy. And as we look at the lives of Naomi and Ruth, it was not easy for them. And there was a lot of hardship and a lot of things that they had to walk through. But God, we are told that in the midst of that, your love for them was complete. Your care for them was faithful. And you guided them where they needed to go. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are good all the time. And while our lives don't always reflect that and certainly at times don't always feel that way, God, you are good to us. And you love us. And you sent your son as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be redeemed and brought back to you. That that whatever happens in our day-to-day life, life here on this earth, it pales in the significance of what will happen in eternity for those of us who put our trust in you. Lord, you bought us, and you want us, and you love us. Heavenly Father, as we struggle in the day-to-day, Lord, will we trust you? Would we trust in your goodness? Will we trust in your plan? Will we trust that you're God and that you know what you're doing and that you are working something in us for your good and for your glory? Heavenly Father, whatever we're going through, help us to trust you. Amen.